Welcome back to the Lifetime at Work podcast, episode 25. I've taken a bit of a break, as you probably noticed. It's been almost a year and a half since I recorded the last episode, but I've reinvented, rethought, reimagined a little bit about what this podcast should be, and I'm back. So uh, happy to have you. I'm glad you're, you're joining. I've got a great show all planned for you here as the first one back. So Let's play that intro music. I'll tell you a little bit about what we're doing and we'll get going. The Lifetime at Work podcast is all about our jobs and career and what they mean to us. Why do we do them? What, what do we get out of them? What are we trying to accomplish and achieve every day? Each episode is a bit different. I interview someone about their job or what they have to say about the world of work. The idea is the same as it's always been to bring more meaning and purpose into your life through the lens of your job. And if you know me, you know part of the reason for being on that big hiatus in this podcast has been that the changes in my life and my career. I started a business, went to work for that business full time, and then it failed. The pandemic killed it. It was a restaurant and office catering business, and the business model just doesn't work right now. I learned a lot, but now I'm back in the world of investment banking. I'm a managing director at a Toronto-based boutique firm called Origin Merchant Partners. We focus on M&A, and I spend my days now trying to grow that company while working with business owners of all kinds, trying to raise money, grow their business, maybe maybe buying or acquiring another business for them, and quite often helping them monetize or sell their business when they're ready to exit. What's interesting about Origin, though, as a company is that I was there from the beginning. It was when I was starting in 2011 that I that I first started and joined. And then I left a number of years later. And when I came back, it was in the thick of the pandemic. Morale was pretty low because the business was doing great. People were working late nights and, and all the time because there was so much business and everyone was trying to trying to do things. And it meant that people were working from home in their little condos or in their basement or somewhere that wasn't as nice as it used to be. And they were missing a lot of those elements that made work fun face-to-face interaction, the social dynamics, being part of a growing organization and feeling that connection and, and all those things. And so when I returned to the company, a, a lot has improved kind of since then. And I've try, been trying to help and, and, and be part of that. And since then, we've effectively kind of doubled in size. And I now have a lot to say about the world of work. And I hope to bring that to this podcast. So with that preamble, I'd like to get going on the episode. This episode is with a guy named David Roselle. David started his own business early, I think before he was even 20 years old, and he sold it in his 30s, and then he had to figure out what to do next, and he decided to to pivot or focus on retirement and help people with that. He began a wealth management business of his own, and then he wrote a couple books. And ever since then, he's been on this track of trying to get people to think about retirement savings and and, and doing a lot. But he's also explored the world. I think he's been to 65 countries. He's a big traveler and a, a, all about the experiences and enjoying life. And that's an interesting thing when you try to balance, okay, make sure you save for your retirement and make sure you enjoy your life. And so that's what we talk about today. But what does retirement mean? Why do we want to do it? Is our goal to work really hard in a job that we sometimes or very often might not like just so that we can retire comfortably and enjoy our 60s and 70s? So I've said enough about it. The podcast, the episode gets into all of that as I interview David Roselle. So here it is and please enjoy. David, welcome to the Lifetime at Work podcast. Greg, thanks for having me on your show today. Awesome. Well, it's great to have you. And I've been following and, and reading a bit of your of, of your stuff and interested to impart that on the audience today. But I thought it would make sense to have you begin with a little bit of a background on on yourself and we can we can take it from there. Sure. Uh, probably a good place for me to start is uh, my first job. Uh, I was 15 years of age. And back then, a lot of homeowners would seal coat their own driveways. And my dad was seal coating his driveway. Uh, and you basically bought these five gallon drums of this black tar and you apply it to your driveway with a squeegee. And I helped dad do it. And the neighbor saw me. And the next day he hired me for $25 to seal coat his driveway. 
And back in 1984, that was a considerable amount of money for a, a young teenager. And uh, I was so delighted to make that $25. And he was delighted with the job I did that uh, word of mouth got around in the neighborhood. And I ended up seal coding eight driveways that summer. Well, I was still in high school the next summer and I decided to start advertising. And my mom would take me around in her big Buick Electra. We'd fill up these five gallon drums from the local hardware store and ended up seal coding 25 driveways. And uh, I ended up growing this business, um, not only through my four years of college, but when I uh, graduated from college, rather than uh, look for a, a job in the business world, like most of my friends, we were in a recession in the early 1990s. Um, I decided to keep this business alive. And so when Mother Nature forced us to shut down operations in the wintertime because it was just too cold to apply the sealer, rather than look at that as a detriment, I looked at it as an opportunity. And what I would do is I'd shut down the business for those six months and buy a one-way plane ticket. And over the next decade that I grew this company, um, I had an opportunity to spend a month in 65 countries around the world. And, uh, and when I sold the company 10 years after college, we were seal coding over 1,200 driveways a summer. It seems like fell into this or it seems to just happened to sort of happen to you. And all of a sudden you found yourself saying, hey, I could, because you probably could have got another job or done something else with the winter with the winter months, uh, you know, why, what, what made you think, Hey, I, sh <laughs> I should go and, and travel instead. Yeah. I just think it was that adventurous spirit. It was kind of a combination of serendipity, which is unexpected good happenings of being asked by my neighbor to seal coat his driveway. Um, and I always say that luck is persistence in disguise, a, a lot of hard work. Um, but at that age, uh, that first trip, I thought there could be nothing more exciting then putting on a backpack, grabbing my tent, yeah. sleeping bag, and, and heading down under. And I uh, went to Australia and New Zealand. And when I was down there traveling for six months, I realized that there were so many other people traveling the world at my age and coming from places like Southeast Asia and South America. And so when I went home that summer, I said, Mom and Dad, we're still living at home. I'm going to seal coat driveways one more year. Um, I'm going to travel to Southeast Asia next year. And then I promise I'm going to come home and get a real job. And the business just kept growing and growing and uh, making more and more money, especially for uh, someone of that age. And it just kind of all serendipitously uh, fell into place. Right. Okay. So we'll come back to it, but I, I wanted to then now sort of speed ahead. You, you, you sort of exited that business and decided to start uh, another one and, and get out of that, get out of that business. Maybe you can talk about that next. Yeah, I was uh, at the age of 19. So I was four years into the business. I was still in college. Uh, you know, I always like to say there's, there's two things that a 19 year old male has on their mind at all times and automobiles are one of them. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and I went to our local bank and, and got financing approved to buy a brand new Honda Prelude black on black power windows. It, and I, I'll never forget sharing the brochure with my grandma, grandma Ruth. And grandma was ahead of her time. Um, she was a college grad. She lived through the great depression and she was wise beyond her years. Um, she was very knowledgeable about the stock market and investing and would always take my grandfather's average income and invest 10% of it in the market. And over time, she accumulated some wealth. And she said, David, that is a gorgeous car. It's going to be nicer than all your friends' cars. Um, but I want to show you this chart. And she showed me a chart that I have in my books that shows someone funding an individual retirement account, an IRA. And I never heard of one at that time. And the most you could fund it was $2,000 a year. And she showed me that if someone started at the age of 19 and stopped funding it when they were 27 and got the stock market average of 10% and never funded it again past the age of 27, how the power of compound interest comes into play and that I'd have over a million dollars in that account by the time I was 65. And this 
day forever changed my life because not only did I not buy that car, I started funding my IRA and learning about finance and then eventually started a retirement account for the employees that I had hired for the driveway dealing business. And so that then led you to say, or, or you clearly enjoyed that because then that led you to say, hey, I'm now going to sort of dedicate the next part of my life to to kind of the wealth management side of things and ed- educating people on retirement. Yeah, I almost became a, a pseudo financial planner. So my employees uh, after the business would come to me, friends and family members as I continued to get more knowledgeable about this and come to me and ask me for financial advice. And so when I sold that company at the age of 30, um, I felt like I had done that business already. I had already met the challenges and decided, huh, what, what's my next calling? What, what am I passionate about? And I realized that helping guiding people with their financial futures was my next calling. Gotcha. Okay. So you're, you don't really necessarily have a traditional workplace background. I, you haven't really, you know, you were sort of running a company. It was, uh, it was your business that was something that you started very young. And then, you know, following that, you came into a kind of, a, I imagine different sort of, sort of workplace where, where it was really kind of your own business and you were drive, driving things. Is that, is that a decent kind of characterization of, uh, of how you've worked in the, throughout your career? That would be correct. Right? There's certainly nothing traditional about uh, my work history. Um, I've never had a boss one day in my life. Uh, so starting at the age of 15, growing that first driveway seal coating business till the age of 30, and then getting involved with finance. Um, and so now we're, uh, you know, 20, 22, 23 years in with this financial firm. And, uh, and it's really evolved into uh, a true passion where we're able to help guide people with their financial futures. Because what I found is they don't really teach us any of this stuff, any of these core financial lessons in school. And so most of us learn about finance from our parents. And what do our parents know about finance? Most of them, very little. And, uh, and their parents lived through the Great Depression. And so they have a, a very different association of money. And a lot of that is often fear-based. So a lot of uh, what we do is trying to change people's relationship to money, what money is, what it isn't. Um, and and so on, and and help them come up with a plan so they can accumulate money over time so one day they can live the life they've imagined. Uh, My grandma always said, if you ever want to be independent of the paycheck, you don't have to do anything extraordinary. You just want to do some ordinary things extraordinarily well, like not live on 100 or 110% of your paycheck, and maybe live on 90% and take that extra 10% and pay yourself first with it by investing into your future. Yeah, no, it's, it's a, I mean, it's a lesson that I think we all need at times and you're right. hundred percent. I think we don't learn that in school. I think we learn the compound interest thing and the, the chart that you mentioned earlier sort of comes in, whether that resonates at that time though, in your life you know, it's hard to say. I, I, I think I, I do remember seeing that probably at some point in high school and, probably, and not really knowing what to do about that other than to say, you know, more generally, yes, saving it, saving is good. As you get older in your career, you tend to think more and more probably about retirement and making sure that you save. And obviously, you know, a bunch of these examples are trying to show people that, no, you need to think about it early. How do you think about what you choose as your job in the context of you know, how important it is to save, i.e., you know, say you were an artist or something like that, or say you were, um, you know, someone who, who who knew they wanted to do something very passionate about it, but it wasn't something that traditionally or just doesn't make a lot of money. H- how do you, how do you justify pursuing that passion versus, versus doing something maybe more traditional, safer, that might give you a, a chance at a better retirement? Well, I think when you follow your passion and you find what your passion is, it leads to happiness and contentment. And the least selfish thing we can do in this lifetime is be happy. Because when we're happy, 
We're not a burden on anybody. If you think of the happiest person you know, Greg, they're not a burden on anybody. And then if you think of the least happy person you know, there's a high probability that they're a burden on most of the people around them. So, you know, everyone's going to have a different outlook on life, but I can only share you mine. And my association to money is money gives me the freedom to do things that I couldn't do if I didn't have money. Uh, my daughter goes to school in New Zealand. And because I've saved up enough money, I can buy that plane ticket to go down and visit her in November. Um, does money bring happiness? I don't think so. But I also know that if I had a choice of not having money and doing some ordinary things extraordinarily well to accumulate some money to do the things that are important to me, like have adventure in my life and have some nice things, um, I would choose the latter. But I guess, do you then think, you know, put, putting the retirement or the savings or the compound interest hat on, do you at a certain point need to flip to to saying, hey, th this isn't necessarily making me enough money so that I, <laughs> that I, you know, I may not necessarily be able to do like, especially if those things are physical, right? You think of a, of an athlete or someone who, who knows that they're only going to have a limited career and they need to think about something to, to do post retirement or, or when they're done that career, do they need to think about that? Should they, should they worry about it later? I'm, I'm, I'm curious from a retirement, you know, planning perspective, if, um, if, if that's something you advise or have people worry about or, or what? Well, it's a tough question to answer because there are no needs. Uh, no one needs to do anything. Um, and it's really your own value system. Um, if you want to be independent of the paycheck one day and have some financial freedom, if it, it has to be the attitude. If it is to be, it's up to me. Um, and so it, I always say the tougher you are in yourself today, the easier life's going to be on you later. And uh, I'm not trying to simplify this, but whatever money you're earning, don't live on all of it. Live on 90% of it. Take the other 10% and invest it for your future. If you don't have the ability to live on only 90%, then you might want to consider looking at other alternatives. Yeah, like I'm, I'm thinking too about, you know, that, that parent that we all know who who sort of and and you're 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 a parent and have kids who are probably thinking about their careers but you know as they sort of reach those elder years of say high school or into into college university they then start to think about what what they want to do and as a parent you want your kid i think to do what they want ultimately but at the same time you have a bit of an opinion about well i think you should do this or head in this direction or you know do something that and i think you know in a lot of cases something that has a paycheck. Do you find that as a parent challenging? Have, have you thought about that? Have, have you, are you totally hands-off in, in, in that yourself? You know, every parent relationship is going to be different. Um, I'm in the business of wealth management. So, um, you know, I uh, basically brainwashed my kids <laughs> at a young age and, and started teaching them about these different lessons. In the beginning, did they care? No. Did they listen? No. Um, but then all of a sudden, I got to a point where they're like, huh, um, you know, can you teach me a little bit about that? So what do I do for my kids is um, they both worked at our local grocery store um, since they were 15. And I taught them what an IRA is, a Roth IRA, because that grows tax-free. And I said, huh, I said, here's an idea. For every $300 that you earn, what if you spend $100 because you've earned it and you deserve to have fun? $100 goes into your savings account for when that new that used car of yours breaks down, you have money saved up. And $100 goes into your Roth IRA. And for every $100 that you put into your Roth IRA, I'm going to double it. And you're going to make a 100% rate of return immediately on your money. And you're going to have $200 growing. And this was a way that I was able to motivate my kids to learn about the power of compound interest, not living on all of your money and put money away for their future. And, uh, and they're both doing that right now.
Yeah, there's good good lessons. Do you, so do you think that that will translate going forward where, where they're now? I'm, I'm assuming they've, they've, they don't work at the grocery store anymore, but where that as they get older, they follow those practices and they believe in that or, or how, or put another way, how would that manifest when say, you know, you're not there and they're on their, their own having to, to save themselves? Well, I think we should do another podcast show in about 10, 15 years. <laughs> and I can give you the answer to that. Um, what do you but, hope would happen? <laughs> uh, well, what I really believe is they're learning the difference between working for money and having money work for them. Um, last year, when the markets were up almost 20%, I was able to show them that their account, let's say that it had $1,000 in it, all of a sudden at the end of the year was worth $1,200. And that extra $200 has grown in that account without them having to work for that money. The money was working for them. And so... That is a very powerful lesson when you start investing and you start seeing it growing uh, before your eyes. And then over time, that just continues to grow and mushroom and accumulate. It's a very empowering feeling. Yeah, gotcha. Um, no, I, I think uh, I, I, that's the hope, right? The hope is that you teach them and then eventually, you know, pull away from the need to to have that influence or, or have that sweetener and, and then have your, your kids or whoever you're teaching. I, I imagine from, from a, from your, you know, your business perspective um, to, uh, to get on their own and, and to, to save themselves and save themselves. Yeah. Um, is uh, you've, you've written a couple books. We, I forgot to, to mention that. Um, but why, you know, why write the books? And, and maybe if you want to talk briefly about the objective and, and what you're hoping to, uh, or that they do achieve. Yeah. So, yeah, what I realized is that um, money and investing is not only mundane for most people, but it's a heavy topic. Uh, it has some kind of uh, emotion associated to it. And most people don't want to come home from work and, and read a book on this topic. And I understand that. So my intention when I started writing books on this subject matter was to make it actually fun. The first financial planning books that are fun to read. And so what I've done is I've meshed my two passions, speaking about passions, and every chapter starts out with one of my more riveting travel stories from spending time in 65 countries around the world. And then I'm able to link that story into a financial lesson and make it fun. And when there's one too many charts in that chapter, you start the next chapter with another fun travel story that then links into a financial lesson. And so it's been uh, a very successful endeavor. It's been fun. Uh, and I've gotten a lot of great feedback and, a, and some national acclaim uh, from these books. And so for your listening audience, uh, a book I wrote for my clients, children and grandchildren is called Keep Climbing, A Millennial's Guide to Financial Planning. It's really a good educational read for anyone at any age that doesn't have much of uh, a knowledge base on investing and compound interest and a lot of these financial lessons. And then another book that I wrote, my first book is called Failure is Not an Option, Creating Certainty in the Uncertainty of Retirement. And this is a book for people who have already reached the financial summit. They've accumulated uh, all the money they're going to have in their life. And now they need a plan on how are they going to live off this money and get down the financial mountain to the base and do so without ever outliving their resources. Do, do you, and what, like what, from your perspective, has that been helpful? Have you like, do you find that this is part of your education for, for, for everyone is, is a book a helpful way to, to do that? Do you think people come away with the right messages from that? And, and maybe, you know, from especially kind of the second book, um, you know, who, who is it for? Is it really for the, the people who just don't have a financial background? Yeah. So the first book is for a younger uh, audience that is climbing the financial mountain. They're in the accumulation phase. They don't have a great knowledge base on this topic. And by the time they complete this book, they really have a good sense of 
what the different retirement accounts are, how they work, the pros and cons, the different financial lessons. Um, and the best way that I can, uh, best analogy I could use between the two books is, um, I had an opportunity years ago to meet Ed Beasters, who is certainly the best mountaineer that's probably walked the planet earth. He summited Mount Everest seven times without supplemental oxygen. And I'll never forget when he said that, you know, most people think my goal is to get to the summit, to the top. And he goes, that's not my goal at all. He said it's the second half of his journey where on the descent is where 80% of the accidents and deaths happen. So when I hit the summit, I still have the second half of the journey ahead of me. And it's really the second half of the journey, he says, that takes on most amount of risk and needs the most amount of planning. And that was my aha moment to write uh, the first book, Failure is Not an Option, because I realized that when people are hitting their years of retirement and they're on the top of the financial mountain, they're no longer adding money to their retirement accounts. And now they're going to live on those accounts for two, three, and sometimes four decades, that it's the second half of the financial journey that also takes on the most amount of risk and needs the most amount of planning. So the second book helps you get down once you're already retired. Keep Climbing is the book that teaches you the lessons for a younger audience of how to get up to the top of the financial mountain no matter what your current circumstances are. Do you think people should and do? And I mean, they, they look forward to retirement in a lot of ways. I, I think we, we fondly think of our retirement just being able to do, to do anything, right? Do, do you think that's justified? Should we? Well, it's going to be different for everyone. You know, interestingly enough, the word retirement comes from the Latin word retire, which means to end or be put out of use. <laughs> and it makes sense because a couple generations ago, people would work for a company until they were 65. They would get their gold watch. And three years later, they were dead. And it really meant the end. And social security, or as I like to call it, social insecurity, was meant to help supplement their income over that three to four year period of retirement. Now people are retiring younger they're living 10 years longer and they're spending up to a third of their life in their retirement years. And so people have different, uh, a different association to retirement in that word. Uh, a lot of people struggle in retirement because if you are your occupation and then you lose that occupation in retirement, then by definition, you aren't. And a lot of people feel directionless and they feel like it's the end. And then I've come across other people who look at it as so much opportunity. And even though they're independent of the paycheck, they want to open up that coffee shop because it's something they always wanted to do or that bed and breakfast. And so there's a difference between being financially independent and choosing to work and being retired and, and not having any work in those years at all. Yeah, it's funny. I think we just throw those that term around, right? We throw the retirement and and that is being what we're striving for. It's kind of like, I think, I think to your prior example, the, the Everest goal, we sort of think of, you know, retirement being is, Hey, this is what I'm building up towards in many ways, you know, whether or not that's actually, you know, what we want. And I, I, I don't know. I'm just curious. That's why I ask you the question, like for you, do you see that as, as something you want to do? Do you see yourself retiring in the sense of, you, you know, you've, you not doing anything that would generate income or be considered as work, or is that not something you strive for? Well, previously, my goal was to retire as young as possible, and that changed a number of years ago. Um, I uh, have a mentor in my life. His name is, is Dan Sullivan, and he runs a company called Strategic Coach. And I'll never forget the time when someone went up to, to Dan and said, Dan, you're 75 years of age. Um, when are you going to retire? And he looked at her and said, I've been retired for years. And in disbelief, she said, what do you mean you've been retired for years? You still write books every year. You speak all over the country. You're still running your coaching company. You're not retired. And he looked her in the eyes and said, I have retired years ago from everything I no longer wanted to do. 
And that was an aha moment. He set up his life. He by he's elevated himself by delegating. And we all have different tasks in our career that we just don't like doing. And he said, if you could find a way using his method to spend 80 plus percent of your waking hours at work doing the things that you love, that you're passionate about, and find other team members who are passionate about the things that you're not passionate about. They just love doing the spreadsheets that you can't stand doing, as an example. You will never want to retire. You're going to keep your passion alive. And you're never going to be put out of use, which is the definition of retirement. And using Dan as an example, this keeps him youthful and vibrant, keeps his mind, his body alive. So he, as my mentor, is someone that I want to follow. And uh, instead of trying to retire as young as possible, I want to be independent of the paycheck, but choose to still work and choose to be in my passion. Yeah, like what I think is interesting, and I, I don't know if it just get, doesn't get enough press or play, but I feel like in the world today, and especially the world that we live in, there's so many jobs, call it, that don't feel like jobs that are, th- you know, that are, involve 70, 80, 90% potentially of these elements or components that we actually like doing and would do anyways, even if we weren't paid. Whereas you think back, I don't know, 200 years ago, there's probably there were some people I'm sure that really just loved being the thing that they were, but a lot of people just did hard labor or you know worked on a farm or or you know very monotonous kind of work to to pay the bills and and didn't really enjoy it and really just looked forward to the weekend or when they didn't have to do that and that was their their lives and I think you know to your story that's probably one of the, these unique things with all the you know the, just the way you could span the world technology and all these things that it's done, it's actually allowed us to do these interesting jobs that that can actually, you know, pay really well, but be sort of highly specialized to the point where where we can kind of do what we what we love. Um, do you uh, do you agree? <laughs> yeah, you know, it, I have found that the happiest people I come across are the people that have found a career that they not only enjoy, but they're passionate about. When I meet someone who's in an occupation or has a job that doesn't excite them at all and uh, they don't find any joy in it, um, I tend to find those people less happy. And I think from um, my value system is being happy is is really one of the utmost of importance. Like to... Tell a little bit of a story of of myself to to kind of relate. I mean, I when I graduated university, I, I didn't have a. I wanted to be an entrepreneur like you, but I didn't have any sort of job. <laughs> I didn't know what I would do, so I, I started in in the world of investment banking and was working just a ton of hours. I mean, there'd be hour, you know weeks where you'd work 100, 100 hours, maybe even more, and it just you know. But at the same time, I was learning a lot and, and really enjoyed it. But it, it kind of kept going and going and going, and and I didn't really know anything else and kind of kept working in that world. And all of a sudden I sort of felt myself in the zone of, of thinking about retirement because I, there was all these things that I wanted to do, but I didn't have any time to do them. I was, I was working too much and sure I was making money and, and saving for my retirement, but I didn't really have the, the free time I would say to do a lot of the things that I would, would want to do or that came to mind or piqued my interest or, or whatever it might be. And so I, I ended up leaving that and, and starting my own business. And that didn't work out overly well. And I found myself sort of back into that sort of same role in, in a lot of ways or in, in a similar role back kind of in the corporate world. But, but I think with a very different perspective, um, which is interesting. And I think it, you know, my perspective now is really around a lot of what you're saying is that, you know, at times we, I think, traditionally have even thought that our the purpose of our career is to get us to the point where we can retire, we can have enough money doing that career. And I actually think right now the purpose of our career is probably to to move around to different jobs to find something that you really like doing that doesn't feel like a job and that will be something that you can do forever if 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 your body so allows you to to do. So you know that was my lesson from from 
sort of learning and and going through uh, a bunch of things that I did to to kind of get there. Um, but anyway, I just wanted to share that that with you because I think it resonates with you know some of the things that you're saying around just finding what you're doing and being happy. And sometimes you don't. You know, part of my point is sometimes you don't know that you're happy until you go and try some of those other things. And I think you know part of life and part of the working world is just going ahead and and doing those things and and learning that. Yeah, I call it failing our way to success. Yeah. You know, trying different things, seeing what resonates, and and really just listening to that gut and intuition, because uh, we know what feels good and what doesn't inside. And if and if you follow your bliss, you listen to yourself, and you really find something that you can get passionate about. Uh, I think we spend so much of our adult life and our waking hours in our occupation, um, and it's. It's easier said than done. I get it. But if you really put it out there and search and find something that your intuition says, yes, um, I really think not only will you be happier, um, but you'll it'll be more lucrative and uh, and have an opportunity to have higher income. So you have more money to invest so that one day you're only working if you choose to be working. Do you think flipping gears a little bit that life expectancy will be longer that we should actually be planning for longer than the i don't know what what do you well first first of all question how long do you advise people that they should uh they should ideally save for well the financial plans that we put together are to age 95 which is well past life expectancy uh, the, but yet the fastest growing proportion of our population are centenarians, believe it or not, people 100 years and older. Uh, so Heather, uh, my partner, her grandmother recently passed away at 106, 106. Right. And la- last year, Hallmark greeting cards sold 75,000 hundredth birthday cards. So although that's not the norm, and most of us are not going to live to age 100, to be conservative, we're uh, we're having our plans last to age 95. Do you think it's going to get even older? Like I, I'm sort of thinking, and and then what happens if you run out of money <laughs> at 100 and you end up living to 110? I'm just seeing the advancements in in healthcare and technology, and wondering. Geez, if we're pushing the limits here, we need to rethink this whole uh, this age of of retirement. I, I don't know. Maybe maybe we maybe you've already factored that in. But yeah, well, you know that leads to um, one of the big financial lessons that I discussed is the detrimental impact of inflation. Now, inflation right now is smack dab on the top of mind awareness of everyone out there. All you have to do is go yeah. to the gas pump or go to the supermarket. Um, and even though we're at a, a 40 year high of inflation, it is good to put it in perspective and uh, realize that, you know, we've had inflation as high as 18% in 1980, but it all comes back to the law of averages and the average inflation rate is between three and 4%. But at three and a half percent inflation, which means that something costs a hundred dollars today, next year at this time, it'll be $103.50 in general. But mathematically, what that means is that every 20 years, the cost of living doubles just at three and a half percent. So a car that was $25,000 20 years ago is $50,000 today. So here's the scary part. Let's say you're 40 years young and you meet with a financial advisor and they say, okay, when would you like to retire or be independent of the paycheck? And hypothetically, this person says, in 20 years at the age of 60. And the financial advisor says, well, how much money would you like to live on? And I'm just going to use some round numbers for easy math here. And that person says, you know, I would like to live on $100,000 net of taxes. Pretty nice income. Well, that financial advisor is going to be taking into account the negative impact of inflation. And because the cost of living doubles in 20 years, by the time that 40-year-old hits 60 and is at the top of the financial summit, they're going to need to have enough money in those accounts to take out $200,000 a year to buy what $100,000 buys today. So now you're 60 years young. It's your first day of retirement. 
And before you know it, you're 20 years into retirement and now you're 80. A lot of people are living well into their 80s, as we all know. Well, in that 20-year period, the cost of living doubles again. And now you need $400,000 to buy what $100,000 bought when you were 40. And let's just say you live close to what Heather's grandmother lived to and you live to 100. That will double again to 800,000. Now, I know you're thinking, a lot of people out there are thinking, that's crazy. You're going to need $800,000 at age 100 to buy what $100,000 buys at 40. But I'll also ask people that you know are in their 40s and 50s and 60s and say, I would guess that you spent more money on your last automobile than your parents spent on their first home. And almost always the answer is that's correct. <laughs> so that is the negative impact of inflation. Not here to spread fear, but I'm trying to use that as a motivational force that if it is to be, it's up to me. And it's time to start planning for retirement today. You mentioned before people being afraid of either planning or being afraid of money or talking about it. Why do you think that is? Well, I think there could be a number of reasons, but a lot of it is lack of knowledge. A lot of people think, I'm embarrassed because I don't know anything about money. And I say, why should you be embarrassed? You've never been taught these financial lessons. Our schools do not do an effective job of teaching people, the average person is gonna earn millions of dollars in their career, the average earner out there. And yet no one teaches us what to do with those dollars, how to make those dollars work for us. The law of 72, the law of power of compound interest, all these different key lessons uh, that are so important to learn at any age. Yeah, I I think it is. There's a there's a fear, right? There's a fear about just making a mistake, I think, or not doing the right things, or being criticized. I think from potentially of of what you've done or what you should do, or or hey, you invested in the wrong wrong thing. It's a curious thing, just because people don't really like talking about it in a lot of ways. You know, it's very rare you come to a dinner party and then all of a sudden start talking about you know, how much money you have and or make or or anything like that. It's a lot more likely that you're going to talk about this great investment that that uh, you know you you found or 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 something you invested in and people are seem happy with <laughs> with that. So I, I don't know. I'm I'm deducing that it's maybe the, the the potential for the downside that makes us uh, seem silly that we don't want to talk about it. Yeah, you know, there's an acronym for fear, F E A R, and I call it false evidence appearing real. Yeah. Um, and uh, a lot of the fear, if we start learning about some of this stuff, you'll realize, huh, this is interesting. I'm going to empower myself and learn about this. And um, there's some great books in addition to mine, like, like Rich Dad, Poor Dad and The Millionaire Next Door and The Richest Man in Babylon and Think and Grow Rich. And these are all wonderful books that kind of can act as a guide. And even if you just pluck one or two lessons that resonate with you and you implement them in your life, they can make a huge impact. Yeah, no, I I actually recently just read Rich Dad Poor Dad, and you know whatever. I'm much old. Usually they recommend in university, and they and you hear a lot about it uh, even since. But I, I would highly recommend it actually to anyone that hasn't read it. No matter no matter who you are, even if you think you're a financial genius, um, to to give it a read. It's uh, it's it's just a very I don't know, just a good book, I think, in, in terms of just uh, the lessons um, that it has, but there's there's sort of a lot out there. Um, what So what do people with money do? And, and maybe I'll take a step back and say, I think a lot of people with, with, say, with approaching advisors, say, or someone, you know, whether it be going to the bank and saying, what should I do with my money or finding a wealth advisor or someone... They kind of think they sometimes have this mentality that they're going to get uh, they're going to get swindled or that somehow they are you know going to that they're going to take all their money and, <laughs> and they're not actually going to give them the best uh, best advice. Does that happen? And in you know, is there any advice you have for people in terms of trying to choose someone to help them? Well, 
I think in any profession, I just recently built a house and I had an incredible builder, but most people I speak to are having a, a horrible experience with their, their home builder. Um, and, and the same could be said for any profession, but I truly believe that most financial advisors out there are good, honest people, the ones I've come across over all these years. Um, I, I think it, it's reaching out to friends and people and doing your research and interviewing some financial planners and seeing um, who resonates with you. Um, it's really important to have a financial coach. I mean, Tiger Woods was the best golfer in the world at one point, and he had two coaches. Um, I think that uh, it's important to have coaches along the way and mentors, and I certainly do. Um, I mentioned Dan Sullivan, my a life mentor. Um, and so um, I think it's important to have a financial coach, have that person that's going to guide you and motivate you and, and teach you. Um, there's a lot of great advisors. I, I recommend working with independent financial advisors rather than the big Wall Street firms. Not because the advisors aren't good, but at the end of the day, uh, an independent financial advisor's only fiduciary responsibility is to their client and not any type of employer. And I think that makes a big difference. So we're seeing more and more of the top financial planners uh, in the United States that are aligning themselves with independent financial firms. Totally. Yeah, the independent thing makes a ton of sense rather than you know particular products that I think advisors are trying, certain advisors, I suppose, are, are trying to, to push. But it, it's also probably a situation, you're just trying to find someone that you like, right? That you enjoy. If you hate money, <laughs> find someone or hire. It's like the thing you said before with retirement, you reach a certain point in your life where you're going to, you know, you don't have to stop working completely. You can just push off the things that you don't like doing to someone else who does like doing it. In a lot of ways, you can find a financial advisor that can do those things and and do it for you. I, I you know, personally, I don't really like doing it. So to have someone who's going to, who I know and trust, who's, who's sort of on it, it is just a lot much more comforting, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And it's important to ask them, you know, how do they get compensated? What is the cost of investing with you? Um, some of the best financial advisors out there are charging for their advice. That's what we do at our firm because ideas have value yep. and we put our clients on an annual retainer. Um, and then the other side of the business, one side is, is the advice and education. And then the other side is the investing. And uh, for the most part, if I were to stereotype the typical financial uh, wealth manager around the, around the country, it's going to cost about 1% per year to manage someone, uh, their, their investment. And uh, costs only become an objection in the absence of value. And when you find someone that you trust and you like and they resonate with you, you're going to find value in that relationship. And it, it certainly, uh, in most people's uh, opinion, uh, money well spent an investment. Totally. Do, do you have any goals for yourself for, call it, the rest of your life? Or as you sort of think, you've been to 65 countries already, you've, um, you've written books, lo lots of sort of achievements. But what what else is there to do, or what 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 else do you want to achieve before uh, you, you know, with the rest of your life? Oh, I you are asking the right person. I mean, I am continually setting goals and striving to achieve them, and and that's just part of my makeup. My genetic makeup is about uh, is you know setting things that are going to keep me passionate. So I have travel goals, work goals goals around family and so I'm always uh, setting new goals I work with a, a business coach we do something called the entrepreneurial operating system so we, we meet weekly um, and always um, trying to find joy I, I don't think even happiness is something that just happens I, I think in today's world with all the things happening around us that if we want to be happy and that's a goal of yours I think it takes uh, a concerted effort to do that. And I know that I work very hard at it. One of the things I do is I have something called the five minute journal, which you can find on Amazon. And it's called that because it only takes five minutes a day. And it's the gratitude journal. And I believe that what we think about expands. 
and uh, and just focusing on the things that you're grateful for uh, each and every day. That's what it's been like. Yeah, it's it's one of those um, stop and smell the roses kind of thing. You have to reflect on your day to actually lock it in there and appreciate it. Um, I'm I'm big on that too. Um, just in, in sort of closing here, I wanted to see if there was any, any other sort of advice that you had for, for people uh, young and old, just anything really. I mean, if it has to to do investing or or not. Well, a lot of people, a lot of people in their youth say there's just not enough money at the end of the month to invest. There's nothing left over. And a fellow author, David Bach, calls it the latte factor. And what he does is he'll ask these young people, well, did you ever stop at a coffee shop on the way to work? And most of the time they're going to say, yeah, yeah, I stopped it. Um, and what do you get? And they'll say some kind of, you know, latte cappuccino drink. And and he'll ask, well, how much was that? And they'll say, oh, it was $4.50. And then he'll say, huh. Do you just get the latte or do you get some kind of muffin or roll with that? And very often they'll say, oh, yeah, I, I get a, a muffin as well. And he'll say, well, how much is that? And they'll say, oh, it's about $2.50. So that's $7 right there. And then I'll ask them, well, how often do you do that? And they'll say, oh, maybe three or four times a week. So he'll even say, all right, let's just say it's three times a week. Well, that's. $21 a week times four is $84 a month. That just disappears with these coffees. And if you multiply that by 12 months, it's over $1,000. And you remember that story I shared that if you start when you're 19 and stop when you're 27 and you fund $2,000 a year, you'll have a million dollars by the time you're 65. Well, now you're halfway there just on your latte. So um, there's always a way, I believe, almost always a way to live on less than what you're spending. Great. No, I think that's a great, great way to to conclude. So is there anything else that people want to sort of connect with you, read more, get in touch with you? What's what's the best uh, best way? Yeah, well, if you're interested in the book, uh, Keep Climbing, A Millennial's Guide to Financial Planning or Failure is Not an Option, uh, you can get those at Amazon. Um, you can get those at Barnes & Noble. Um, you can uh, reach out to me at rosellwealthmanagement.com, R-O-S-E-L-L, wealthmanagement.com. And I can also be reached at uh, david at rosellwealthmanagement.com by email. Awesome. Well, thank you. I will also link those in my uh, on my website in the sh- in the show notes. And appreciate you joining me today. Thanks a lot. Uh, thanks a lot, Dave. Oh, it's really a pleasure, Greg. Take good care. Thank you so much for joining. I hope it makes you think a little bit about retirement and what work means to you today and the future. If you know anyone who might be interested in the podcast, whether as a listener or as a guest, please refer them to me. You can go to the website, lifetimeatwork.com and find all the information you need. And until then, don't worry, be happy.